Amen. As you're seated, I look at my clock and I have 30 minutes, and there's so much to do in 30 minutes. So Dave is looking at me. I'm sure all the, the group leaders, you are ready to go with your own groups. I want to honor your time too, uh, but it's going to be hard to do. Hard to do. I'm excited, um, and over when I'm excited, that's dangerous because I'm like nervously excited because the text is so challenging. Um, and I will uh, admit to you that this is not a Saturday night special, but it is a Saturday special. Um, uh, we start sermon discussions and conversations and studying the text early in the week. But I had this, this uh, time with my boys and my dad in Pigeon Forge for two and a half days, which we condensed like 12 days of activities into two and a half. And then yesterday, um, I completed this um, you learn a lot about people in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. I'll tell you that. Almost as much as you do in Las Vegas, but it's just a different style of person. We're going to read in verses 34 through the end of the chapter in chapter 10. And I need you to understand that we can all kind of, I think, intellectually say, well, the, the, the Jewish people and the Gentiles were different. Um, but I don't know that, that we grasp the depth or the breadth of those differences. Um, what is about to happen in these verses that we read is known as, as the Gentile Pentecost. The Spirit of God comes to the Gentile people. And just so you know, Gentiles are those who are not Jewish. So up until this time, they would have worshipped any number of gods. They would have uh, lived life. This, this would be... Um, to use Las Vegas as an example, almost like a good Southern Baptist being plopped down in the middle of Vegas and just looking at a people. Like, I, 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 w I felt so sheltered having gone to that city. I was like, I have been, lived a sheltered life. Like, I didn't know that, but I had. But this is, this is like, this is more than just, oh, they believe this and we believe that. And like, everything is different in these two cultures. And, and this isn't anything new. Not only were your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents, and keep tracing that back 2,100 years since the Abrahamic covenant, like for over 2,000 years, you had been brought into a culture that was completely different than the Gentile culture if you were Jewish. And so everything you did, the way you ate, what you ate, when you ate, when you prayed, when you woke up, what you wore, what you thought, everything was different. So just imagine the most distant culture or the most different culture in your mind from you. One that you are confused by, scared by, intimidated by. And just imagine this group of people being before you. Because I think we can identify with this text and we need to identify with maybe just as we read the text what the Jewish believers, now Christians, may have felt what they may have felt with all of a sudden these people who are very different than them. You can see where this is going to go today, can't you? With all those people who were very different than them, how it might have felt when you have a particular way of life, one established by God in their case, and now it drastically changes. How might that feel to you? I don't know if you have experienced that, oh, in the last few years. But when everything you know as normal changes, how or what might it have felt when all that you have known or your family for 2,000 years has known is now different? 
how might that feel? What does it feel like, or how might it feel if completely unlike you are now the same as you, or at least you're told they're the same as you? How might that feel? The answers to these questions are very important for us to consider reading the text, especially in our faith, and especially in light of the ever-expanding kingdom of God. Because at Gentile Pentecost, we're going to read some powerful words and truths as God shows no partiality But in every nation, those who fear him and does what is right and acceptable to him are accepted just as these Jewish Christians were. And so, God, as I pray to you, I call you and ask you to acknowledge and bring to light the very differences, um, the distinctions that I draw up in my own mind and heart. And allow me to confess them to you. Allow us to confess those things. Lord, we view people who speak differently, think differently, were born in a different year than us, have different life experiences or different accents. These are all differences we acknowledge. Even different worldviews, Father. What are the dividing lines that we have drawn up in our own hearts that we need to repent of? The fears, the intimidation, the anxiety we have with people who are different. We confess these things not just to confess them, but in order that we might be more aligned with your heart and your mission. So teach us by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Peter just had this huge vision, right, of all this food coming down on a blanket that was unclean, according to Leviticus 11, and he argued with Jesus and said, I'm not going to eat that. And the Lord says, you don't get it. And then he realized this isn't about the food, this is about people. And so he goes to Cornelius' house and And then he proclaims the good news to the Gentiles. And the Bible says, Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This detail is in here, by the way, for the Gentiles who weren't really keen on the idea of bodily resurrection. Remember, these folks are more like us. They haven't been raised in the tradition and the teaching of Israel. So that way, so you notice he's not referencing the Old Testament a lot, but it's almost like a 101 introduction to the gospel here. And he's just saying that fact, like we ate with this, this dead guy, so he's alive, and we want you to know that. And we were witnesses of that. That's, that's what he's doing here, saying, hey, for you folks, like, I don't know, 
Americans in the 2022 are extremely objective and, and we want to see and reach and touch and know things empirically. Like he's like, well, let me give you some empirical data. I ate with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So while Peter was still speaking, still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. I, I imagine so. Like, whoa, can you just tell us a little more? Because we don't know what just happened. We just started saying things we didn't know we could say. So don't forget that, that to orchestrate this great expansion to the Gentiles, look at the extent of God's love and desire for them to hear the gospel. I mean, literally, an angel of God visits Cornelius first to send for Peter, and at the same time, Peter, not knowing about this angelic messenger to Cornelius, has a vision of all those foods, and Jesus says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Like all these, all these, these hooved creatures that you, you can't eat according to Leviticus 11. And Peter knows those dietary laws, and he says, listen, I can't. But Jesus says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And we know it's not about the food, as I already said. It's about Gentiles, because Peter refers back to the vision he had at Cornelius' house and say, I thought it was about food, brother, but it's about you. Like, I do not have the authority to call you common, because God has made you clean. I don't have the authority to make an assumption about what God has unequivocally done in your life. I don't have the authority to assume your heart in this matter. And I certainly don't have the authority to distance myself from you because what God has made clean do not call common. And he speaks in light of this in a very different way as I already alluded. It is fewer references to the Old Testament, the faith, the community, but what makes this so interesting and so captivating, and we cannot forget that this morning in Perkinsville Church, as a Gentile myself, and I imagine most of you being Gentiles yourselves, this is the great entrance of the Gentiles. This is the beginning. This is our lineage, y'all. Like, for the gospel going to the Gentiles is the reason that you sit in this space this morning. This has great historical significance. But... As a Jewish believer, welcoming all these new people into the covenant community of God, I, I do see a lot at work here and a lot that applies to us in our context. Because, as I say it again, the Jewish people in an instant of time were having to accept an entirely new reality. I want you to imagine this again. They were having to accept an entirely new reality, a new group of people, and now their faith was available to the world. Now this may, you, your toes may start to feel the pressure of this sermon at any point. When we believe that this is our faith 
and our faith alone. And that for people to come to this faith, they need to look a little like us. We begin to assume the same ownership that the Jewish people did that made it so darn difficult to see this kind of thing happening. Even after tongues come upon the Gentiles, Peter has to say, hey, y'all, unfreeze. Can we withhold water from baptizing these people? Because like, there's this, like, is this really happening? We can't, I mean, the text, the text actually demonstrates that they, they, they can't believe this thing. They, they were amazed. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not just for people like us. This is for all people who call on the name of Jesus, people who are different than us. This is weird. I don't know how I feel about this because they are very different than us. Hey, Peter, do you notice they've eaten all kinds of nasty foods? Do you see the clothes they're wearing? Do you see the way they talk and what they do? Like, like that's not us, Peter. You know the things they talk about? Like, I, I just, that's not us. This was not just a difference. This was like they are unclean. Like there are various rabbinical traditions. You can look at the Jewish history. Some rabbis would have been what we consider more conservative. And they say just avoid the Gentiles altogether because they're inherently unclean. Whereas other rabbis, it was just like today. You can read a spectrum of theological perspectives. And so some of these Jewish believers would have been those kind of more staunch ones saying, don't get near me, Gentile, you're filthy. And they're kind of over here. There'd be others like, well, you can, you can see the, the biblical ways in which the outside like Ruth can come into the covenant community, right? So there was all this spectrum, all this diversity of almost like, like religious political belief going on here. But there could ultimately be no greater distinction between an Israelite and a Gentile. Your daily rhythms looked fundamentally different. Like if you've ever been on vacation and you'll see a group of Mennonites like walking around with the same fabrics and the same dress and tell me what you're like, oh, I'm obviously very different than them, right? And there's this like there is just a distinction that is to be made. It feels different. You know it's different. Sometimes you probably get a little awkward and squirrely like around like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like everything was different. It was visibly different. These people were fundamentally unrelatable is the way I'd say that. But just as Peter has learned, he says these same words, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. James reinforces this idea that we are to show no such partiality. God shows no partiality, but says in every nation it will not be, faith will not be determined by geopolitical, sociopolitical, or any of those iticals. Faith and heaven will be the reward of anyone who fears him. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus belongs to Jesus. That's a hard lesson to live. Like we can all affirm that and amen it and sing songs about the gospel to the nations. And we'll sing it all day long until it starts to affect our very way of life. And we start to see the results of people who are different than us coming to the same gospel and the same Savior. 
I think about the differences a lot. I'm not speaking about race here as much, although we have much to do. Um, a lot's been made of this issue over the last few years, but in our own denomination, we, we know our tattered history with all that. I'm really, I want to talk about a little bit, maybe even more subtle or hidden division, the differences that still divide us both in the body of Christ and in the mission field. I think, first of all, let's just look at those differences that I know are at play in our lives within the body of Christ. I think at Perkinsville, I can tell you two differences that we get kind of squirrely around people who are unlike us, particularly in two categories, age and just general familiarity. Like we, we don't know what to do with the other generation, no matter what generation we're in. Like we can't, I'm not going like, to hide this. This is a source of great tension for us. Because we, we aren't sure how to like, no generation is looking at the other one saying, man, I understand them completely, Right? I mean, have you seen, like, this is a reflection of culture at a whole. Like, all, the poor boomers, all the boomer jokes now, it's unfair. Okay, boomer, right? That kind of thing. Like, we are making a comedy, memes, we're, we're, we're cynical about the generational divide in our country, and it, has, and it has permeated the church to the extent that we are intimidated by generations more than one or two generations away from us. This is a serious point for us at Perkinsville. The second one is just general familiarity. Like there is this, this, this realm of familiarity that we each place. And if we're more familiar with an individual, like we know them a little bit better, or we don't know them a little bit better, like there's, there's just this thing happening. It's fascinating historically at this church. I remember um, hearing two very different stories consistently through the years. Do you want to hear what those two stories are when someone would visit worship? They'd visit us for our worship gathering, and I'd hear two. I'd never hear like, eh, like, it was okay. People were okay. They were kind of nice. I heard like people were, this is the nicest church I've ever been to. And guess what I heard? This was the coldest church I've ever been to. Like no one said hello or everyone said hello. And you know what I found that's the similar? If you knew someone or you were a local, it was the friendliest darn church you've ever walked into. If you had moved to the area and you didn't already know somebody, it could be the coldest church you ever walked into. Now, there was, like I said, there was very rarely, and this is like actual anecdotal observations from hearing from people over the course of a decade now. What was the division? It was existing familiarity, which is a human trait. This is a challenge for all churches of the region. There, there is a common aversion to people we don't know or people who are different than us or younger or older, whatever it may be. But, but really, right now... The divide at churches, not only here, but at churches throughout this region, is so deeply pronounced in many churches, and I pray it's not this one, that there are churches willing to slowly spiral into death with people who look, think, and live just like us because it's too scary to accept and call upon those who don't. And so there are many churches who are willing to accept a slow decline, spiraling death to where the point where that church is non-existent as long as they can die with people who look, think, and act like them. That is like more than 25 of our 31 Southern Baptist churches in our association alone. Because we want people who will, who will appreciate the exact same songs and the exact same culture and think and act and know all the language and the lingo. And sure, we'll invite others in as long as they assimilate to be just like us. One of the scariest prospects in evangelism, when I meet someone and I'm, you know, reaching to share the gospel with them is I do not go come to church as step A. 
Because I don't want them to have to assimilate to all the norms and the cultural customs that we have made. Not all wrong, not all bad, I'm not saying that. But why do I want them to learn all and have to assimilate to all the cultural nuances that we've established here rather than just simply the commands of Christ given in Scripture? That's what I want them to know first. So, so I'm not saying don't invite people to church. I mean, be careful that we're not just creating disciples of a church culture. Because we have a lot of cultural barriers, many we need to repent of and get through to be honest with you. Because it's in the body of Christ, here as well as other places. But it's also in mission, perhaps even more so in the way in which and the commitment to advancing the gospel in our area. Like, like I'm talking about advancing the gospel to people who are so radically different than us that they have the bumper stickers that just make you mad when you see them. You know who I'm talking about. And you think that idiot has no idea what they're saying. The truth is, according to Scripture, they don't, outside of Christ. They have no basis, and they have no measure. How can they unless someone tells them? I'm talking about the people who identify on a spectrum, one you can't even identify. How many letters in the alphabet suit can there be, maybe you say to yourself. Yes, I'm talking about reaching them too. The very different ones than us. The ones who, who make us scared or intimidate us. The very different people. Because my question is, was Saul too far gone? Was the leper or the paralytic or any Gentile for that matter too far gone? Were you too far gone? Was I too far gone? No. The answer is no. None of us were too far gone from the gospel, from the redemption in Jesus Christ. Not one of you. Not I, not you, and not them, the ones very different. I must believe for the sake of mission that no person who still breathes is too far gone. So like, woe to me if I look past them because they attack me. Because they do. They hate the message. They hate the church. Many do. But, but, but forgive me, Father, if I avoid them because that reveals an insecurity in me. Which is what this great fear is ultimately really about. The reason we're so scared of differences and so scared of those different than us, whether in the church or in the mission field, I think it can be addressed by a couple self-assessment questions. I'm going to give them to you. First, am I angered or am I scared or offended by people who are different than me because I truly believe their offense is against a holy God? Or is it because they offend my sensibilities? And I think so often when we claim biblical righteousness, well, they are living in defiance of a holy God. Everyone outside of Christ is living in defiance of a holy God. It doesn't matter what, what spectrum or party or anything. It doesn't matter. Anyone outside of Christ is a living offense to a holy God. But, but I think real, the real issue here is not that they offend a holy God, but rather they offend our sensibilities. They offend the way I think about the world. They offend just the idea of what is clean and unclean. So the first assessment for your heart and your soul is, are you angered or scared or offended by them because their offense is against the Holy God truly, or is it really just an offense of your sensibilities? Secondly, the second assessment, am I fearful of people different than me? Am I fearful of people different than me because truly... They threaten the gospel, or is it just that they threaten my way of life? I think we're scared 
and fearful and angry because so many groups, and even within the church, brothers and sisters maybe, but particularly in mission, they threaten our way of life. The way of life that we have enjoyed and appreciate so deeply. I think that most of us are fearful, scared, intimidated, or even offended by people different than us. But I need to remind you that there is no one too far gone, no Jew and no Gentile, too far gone for, for God to redeem. Galatians chapter 3, as Paul would write, says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female for you, all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're a Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the power of the gospel. It is the power, the power of the gospel is to take people who are very different than you or very different than me and to form an entirely new people. Not a remnant of what you were, but an entirely new people. No heritage, no tradition, no race, no experience, no economic class, no age. None of those form the church. Let me say that again. No tradition, no race, no experience, no economic class, no age. None of those identifiers form Christ's church. It is the gospel alone that forms Christ's church. In a millisecond of time, these two groups on the pages of Acts, two groups of hearers were having, who had absolutely nothing in common with one another. In one millisecond, as the Holy Spirit landed upon them, they had everything in common. The same Spirit, the same Savior, the same God. In the farthest reaching parts of the world, Listen to this. In the farthest reaching parts of the world, maybe the parts you've only read about in National Geographic or watched on National Geographic, maybe the countries you can't even pronounce, the second, the second a man in one of those far-reaching regions calls the name, in Christ, name of Christ, you have more in common with him than your longest friend or closest family member who is not a Christian. Let me say that again. The second, a man in the farthest reaching corner of the earth, in a country you can't even pronounce, in a language you don't even know, in a culture that makes you completely uncomfortable. The second he proclaims the name of Christ, you have more in common with him than you do your closest family member and your closest friend who is outside of Christ. Now let's, let's get that through our skulls for just a minute. We have an eternal home. The same Savior, the same Father, all these momentary differences, they're going to evaporate. The culture, the, the, the language of revelation is not that the, the differences dissipate or go away. It's that they, became a, they become a source of joy and worship and diversity at the Father's feet. Isn't it sad that the church, we measure our members on important scales or less important or more important members, the language of country clubs, VIPs, rather than the one identifying reality that all who call upon Christ are co-heirs of the kingdom, and we're that together. And the beauty is this. You, you may have nothing else to talk about with him. You're like, man, I want to tell you a story about my childhood. And they look at you like you're crazy because your childhood sounds crazy and theirs does too. And then you talk about sports and they're like, I don't like sports. And then they talk about books and you're like, I don't read outside the Bible. And by the way, I don't buy that. When somebody says they don't read except for the Bible, they don't read the Bible much. Now, there are some exceptions, so don't get too offended. Moving on. 
I like books. I don't like books. Man, I love a good steak. Oh, I'm a vegetarian. Or you finish your, your, your water bottle and you go to throw it in the trash and say, ooh, let me recycle that for you. <gasps> so you have nothing else in common. What then could you talk about? What about the redeeming love of Christ in the gospel? What if we stopped looking for all the stupid weather forecasts and who's going to win the next game and actually found the beauty of talking about our redemption together? That's all that these Jews and Gentiles could talk about. The same Savior, the same Spirit, and the same baptism. But you know what we do in church? We do the opposite. We just kind of assume since everybody's a Christian, what we'll do is start scaling all these levels of similarities. It's not the gospel that's formed to people like that. Nor is that any idea of unity. Trent and I are united in our dress style today. We can claim unity around a lot of lower level temporary things. And this church has done that before. I have done that before. We're united because we all should drive Ram 2500s or whatever else. I mean, like, you could pick your reasons. We're all from Boone, praise God, or we're from all these places, or we all like barbecue, praise God, or chili cook-offs, praise God, or we all get along and laugh, praise God. That's not biblical unity. It's unity, but it's not biblical unity. It's only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel alone forms a people. Even then, this hesitation remains, and I get it. Kind of reminiscent of the eunuch's question. Look, there's water. What does prevent me from being baptized? It's almost like Peter's question today. It's almost rhetorical, right? Like, like, like you really don't need to ask that question because without Christ, everything prevents you from being baptized. But now in Christ, absolutely nothing. Like, before Christ, everything revealed your differences. In Christ, nothing reveals your differences in the gospel. Oh, to fall in love with the gospel again. Some words that might help us to look upon our own salvation and to find joy in it in order to find joy in the salvation of others. Ephesians chapter 3. I'll commend you to read this on your own at 9.47 a.m., but dwell on this. Dwell on this passage of Scripture. Church, this is what drives mission. To know that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus has the same spirit, the same Savior, the same Father, and the same mission with you. To recognize that, 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 uh, that, that we are in this. We are redeemed by the same blood. We pro- proclaim the same Savior. I mean, this is no partiality stuff. God is working uh, P- uh, Gentile Pentecost towards Revelation 7. I do want to read this one. As Revelation 7 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can, could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne into the Lamb. Like every person, like the people who wear, wear clothes completely different than us, eat differently than us, think differently than us, all these different things. We get to sing together with a great multitude in heaven proclaiming the same truth that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. What a vision of heaven. We see men, women, boys and girls enter the kingdom to receive the same spirit, same Savior, same Father, same mission. I say this every single week and one day by God's grace it's going to sink in.
that we would care more about mission and the kingdom than anything else. I'm rushing past this, this point, but this is the point of unity. And I just want to get real for a minute with ecclesiology, the study of church. Fancy seminary nickel word there. What we're talking about in this text, I'm going to be very honest with you, is much easier for a church plant. A church plant is that new work. Everyone is new to the work. Some are older Christians, some are younger Christians, but they go to a new place to start a new work. And, to, and if they're going to grow, they're going to grow how? In a healthy way, by baptisms. And so literally, the mission of a church plant is not about protecting the institution. It is about advancing the kingdom and growing that local church through evangelism, mission, discipleship, started by baptism. And so when we talk about church plants in this, like we're going to read the text we do today, and they're like, yes, because they haven't had the time to develop all the cultural norms or the institutional loyalties or any of that stuff. Like that's why so many dudes are like, I'm going church planting now. Some are looking for the long work of a thing called revitalization. Because you've got to take all the norms and the nuances and the barriers that culture's withstanding since places like this, 1947, have built. And you've got to point beyond itself. I thought about that, being in a church plant and hearing these words this morning, and it's like, go get it. But then I, then I decided to look a little bit deeper. North American Mission Board, that is our Southern Baptist church planting entity in North America, shared this data about baptism rates. This is about every year, a church plant baptizes one believer for every 14 attendees every year. An established church baptizes one believer for about every 52 attendees per year. Why do I show this? Because this data reveals the stronghold of holding up differences. Maybe, not maybe. Does this mean that church plants are the most effective means that churches like ours are not? I don't want to be too quick to answer that question. Maybe. It could. I don't think it has to be if churches like ours are just willing to lay down our partialities and recognize that all who call the name of Jesus belong to Jesus and live that way. Not be scared of people who are different than us. Maybe, though, we are too enshrined in our own ways and norms. We've got to be honest with ourselves, right? I mean, if we all affirm 
that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And this baptisms are an indication of people moving from death to life. If we truly believe that is the reason, and we truly believe that when everyone hears the gospel, when everyone has had an opportunity to hear the gospel, Jesus will return. If we truly believe all that stuff, if we truly believe in inerrancy, then this is the metric that matters. If there is a metric that matters. And the truth is, maybe we are too enshrined in our ways and norms. Maybe we just need to be reminded of all the ways and norms that God broke through at the Gentile Pentecost. All those things He brought to the ground in the name of redemption. Maybe we just need to set all those differences down and come before the same Savior, the same Spirit, the same Father. Because if we set our eyes on the single purpose and the single mission, I do believe the future could be bright. That we could be a part of the kingdom coming to Boone as it is in heaven. But we need to be real honest. If not, we should be real honest with ourselves. And are we going to spiral downward with people who look, think, act, and talk just like us? God Himself has the power to redeem every person who calls upon His name regardless of their background or their former beliefs or maybe their present beliefs that they are working and challenged through right now. God has the power to redeem those who are 40 years younger than you or 40 years older than you. God has the power to redeem people with different accents from different places and different norms. He has the power and He desires it to build a people formed by the gospel alone. And so, Father, there are but two roads for every gathered assembly in all of creation. The road of mission, the road of unity in the gospel and the gospel alone, or the road of our comfort and our preference ultimately. Lord, what is to prevent those who receive the Spirit from being baptized? Even in hesitation, we know there is absolutely nothing. And so conform our culture not to our own built-up idea or our own norms, but to yours. Redeem us, Father. If there is a person who has been wrestling with this and has come to the feet of Jesus, maybe even this morning, to call out the name of the one who saves from every nation who calls out his name, would they call out the name of Jesus and receive salvation now? We thank you. We pray in your name as we thank our Savior. Amen.